0: Good morning, friends. Today's reading is from Psalm 73. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, you have set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Well, good morning again. It's great to be able to uh, spend some time with you. If you have your Bible, Psalm 73. I'll try to, every now and again, maybe break out a few different shonerisms, you know, like, listen, bro! You know, and try to, like, just so you guys feel comforted from time to time, but... By and large, I'm far more subdued than Sean, so just be prepared for that. So I want to read it one more time. Psalm, Well, not the whole psalm, but just verses 1 through 3. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Truly God is good to Israel, he says. It's a creed. So this is common. He would know this because he knows the story of Israel. He knows the story of God's people. He knows the story of the world. He knows that God created things good. And then everything was broken and ravaged by sin and evil. But God did not disregard his creation. He said, I'm going to make things new. I'm going to choose a people, Abraham. I'm going to bless them. I am going to do good to them so that they might do good to the whole world. I am going to do good to them and he knows this but he's looking at his experience in front of him and he's saying God, God you're telling me that you want to do good by me you promise to do good to your people you promise to do good to Abraham but that's not my experience that's not what I'm seeing and every single one of us can find our place in this story at some level individually we look at our lives and we say God I know as your chosen people now that you want to do good by me Because we look at the story of Israel and then we transition that into the story of the church and we say, God, you want to do good to your people. But I'm here in life and in my experience, the physical world, reality, and that doesn't seem like the case. Because I'm looking at this neighbor here and they seem to be prospering and they don't even know you. They're not following you. They're not walking with you. But here I am. I'm serving you. I'm submitting myself to you. Yet, why are you doing good to them? This person's children haven't walked away from the Lord. And here I look at my kid, and they've walked away from the Lord. Here I'm looking at this neighbor, and they got the promotion. And they're wicked. I talk to them, and I'm trying to serve. I'm trying to be a blessing in my workplace. I'm doing all I can to follow and to serve after you. But here's what I get. I get cursed. And he goes on to describe these people, starting in verse 4. For they have no pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are, well, just so you know, fat then is not the same as fat now. So when he's saying their bodies are fat and sleek, that's a good thing. He's saying they're just overwhelmed with prosperity. They're so fat that I can just see their prosperity. For they have no pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. So the psalmist is looking now at these people saying, I'm, I'm looking at their experience, and it doesn't seem like they're suffering, although we know differently, as people centered on the gospel, that God looks at the heart, but he's looking at their outward experience, and he's saying, it doesn't seem like they're suffering. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They're so arrogant and prideful in what they have. They have so much, and they're just arrogant. They're boastful, and all that they have, violence covers them (coughs) as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heaven, and their tongues strut through the earth. You know, it's dangerous to actually hold to a theology or to a view of reading scripture that says, if I follow God, he is going to bless me. But it's also hard not to get swept up into it. And if God has actually promised to do good by us, it's also hard to look into our world, our reality, and not have a a conflict within ourselves, where we're seeing these wicked people that aren't following after God, and they seem to be prospering, they seem to be flourishing, And here we look at our own reality, and we say, God, we don't don't see that. But we also know it's not the way it should be, and we shouldn't look at it like that. You know, I have the privilege of working around the world, and I see this all the time when people are trying to fight global poverty. I see Western materialism leak in to global poverty because people start to think, if they only had more, you know, we just need to give them more stuff because they're not prosperous enough. You know, if we only gave them more stuff, then everything would be solved. And we know from experience and working with the poor around the world that's not the case. And we know from our own hearts. Does that solve our problems? If we only had more stuff, if God only gave me more, if I was only more prosperous, then everything and life would be settled. It's just not the case. The psalmist knows the truth, but his experience is telling him otherwise. And this leads him to question. He starts to question the Lord, and it's interesting that it's the same exact temptation that Adam and Eve had in the garden. If you read Psalm 11 with me, it says, And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Did God really say that? You can just take yourself back to the garden in Genesis 3. God comes to Eve. He's having a conversation with Eve. Adam is standing there with her. He says, did God really say that to you? tempting. Leading her away not to trust the Lord, just like what's happening here. And there's a pivotal moment in this text where the psalmist is at a crossroads. He can either decide to trust in the Lord and say, God, you promised to do good to your people. I've heard that time and time again. You've said, I am going to bless you for the sake of you being a blessing. I am going to do good in you so that you can do good in the whole world. But I'm at a pivotal moment in life where I'm seeing the wicked that seem to be prospering, they seem to be flourishing, they seem to be thriving, and here I sit and I'm questioning, and all of a sudden Satan starts to have a conversation with you, and the next thing you know, you're asking these questions. You're saying, is God really good? Really? Is he? Is he really good? Does he really have my best interest at heart? And the psalmist knows. He knows Psalm 139, verse 4. Even before there was a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. God knows everything, and here he's actually asking, does God know? Does God actually see and know my situation? And he's also questioning, does God see the wicked? In Psalm 1-6, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. He knows these things, but he's questioning because of his experience. He's questioning because of what he sees. And he also goes on in verse 13. This is the pivotal moment. He says, all in vain, have i kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence for all the day long i have been stricken and rebuked every morning if i had said i will speak thus i would have betrayed the generation of your children he's not saying that he's blameless he's sinless he doesn't need salvation but he's saying god i've been hungering after you i've been following you and we can all put ourselves in that place can't we Not to say that we're saved by our works, but God's grace saves us. It moves us towards compassion. And we're loving our neighbor. We're giving ourselves towards others. And we're saying, God, do you not see this? I'm trying to rid myself of evil through the gospel. I'm trying to. I'm trying to be faithful. Do you not see? Has it all been in vain? Have you seen everything? Have you seen me try to follow you? Have you seen it? Has it all been in vain? Or is there actually a reason for it? Can I actually look at you and say, God has a plan, God has a purpose? But it's also a misunderstanding of a cosmic reality that I think we all have to wrestle with. And that's the fact that Jesus is Lord, Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. So we as the church now sit under this authority. We're saved by God's grace. We sit under the authority of Jesus. And he sends us out under this authority because he claims all authority. In heaven and on earth, it's been given to me. Go and make disciples. However, there still is this cosmic reality of Satan and evil that is ever-present in our lives and in the world. Rene Padilla, a Latin American theologian, writes this. He says, The world is a system in which evil is organized in oppression to good. (sighs) I want you to hear that. That's really strong. The world is a system in which evil is organized in oppression to good. Nevertheless, it is its connection with Satan and his forces that gives it its character. Satan is the god of this world. 2 Corinthians 4.4, four, and among other verses as well, it says that. The cosmic powers, the authorities, the potenance of this dark world are under submission to Satan. Ephesians Six twelve. So we recognize that all authority in heaven and on earth belong to Jesus, but we also recognize that there is this cosmic reality, a spiritual reality, a domain of darkness and evil and satanic realm that hovers over this creation. And it's really hard for us to understand, especially as Westerners, that always, always want to compartmentalize spiritual and physical It's so hard for us to connect our spiritual reality with our physical reality. But here, Rene Padilla and the Bible as well would say that they're they're connected. They are. That although Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, there is still this reality of cosmic evil that exists through Satan. And it challenges us. Because of this reality, church, we're constantly challenged to be in conflict with the world or to conform. And that's what the gospel does. When given the gospel, God then calls us out and says, You are going to be in conflict with the world constantly. You're coming up against evil. You're coming up against idolatry in your heart. There's constant conflict. And you have a choice within that. You can either conform, which means you lay aside the gospel and you want no place, or you say, I'm going to be in conflict. So in some ways, we expect it. And this is what the psalmist, I believe, is missing, just a piece of it. He's missing that this is expected. Following God and being under God's rule and authority, it's expected that this is going to happen. There's conflict in the Psalms because it appears that the evil of the world is prevailing. The wicked are prospering, and you do not intend good for your people. He's looking at this saying, do you really intend good for your people, or have I missed something? And here's the pivotal moment, and here's what we all wrestle with. We come to this place where we say, God, are you really good? Do you really have my best interest at heart? Do you really want the best for me? In light of all of the evil that I see in the world, I'm questioning you. And has my service for you all been in vain? Have I submitted myself to you and sought to love my neighbor, sought to be holy, walk away from sin and evil? Has it all been in vain? Or or is there actually a purpose for it? And And then it comes to, Verses 16 and 17. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned therein. Until we go to the Lord with all of our burdens, all of the weariness in life, it's hard for us to make sense of it. Because Matthew says this, Matthew: 11:28 says that we are to cast our weary burdens upon jesus and first peter 5 7 says that he wants our anxieties. so we have all of these internal wrestles because we're looking at the sin in the world we're looking at everything that's happening outside of us and we say god could this be your plan for your people if you actually want good for them if you promise good for your people could this be your plan but when we draw near to god when we come into his sanctuary, that's where he meets us. And if I'm, if I'm being honest, this doesn't really relieve the tension. Because still, as a church, we have to look at the world and say, okay, you promised to do good to me. You promised to bless me. You know, you give me all of these promises that are in Christ. And you say, man, I have so much that's in Jesus, yet I'm, I'm suffering. And there's suffering in my life, there's suffering in the world, and there's a paradox, there really is, where you see God's good plan for his people moving this way, but you also see the sin of the world living directly next to it, moving alongside of it, and you say, how do we reconcile these things? And there's not an answer for it, to be honest with you. God doesn't want to answer all of our questions, because what he wants us to do is trust him. He says, in the midst of a broken, sinful world, you have to trust that I intend good for you. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to answer all of your questions, although there, there are ways to answer this, but some of them, church, have you ever had anybody in the midst of suffering that says, ah, don't worry, all things work out for the good. Of those that love God, pat you on the tush. Hey, don't worry, all things work out for the good. Those that love God, called according to his purpose. Romans 8.28, you know, and you're in the midst of suffering. Sometimes it seems so trite, right? We hear these and we think, did you just say that to me? No, granted, it's theologically true that it will. (laughs) It will work out for the good. But you're living in a reality of sin, evil, and brokenness in the midst of God's goodness promised to you, and it's hard to reconcile them, even though you do have promises from God. But what God gives us to trust him is his son, and he says, I want you to trust me because I've been there. I'm not a God that's withdrawn from the reality of suffering, pain, and death. I'm a God that has actually entered into it. And you can trust me based upon the gospel. Verse 21. Says, when my soul was embittered, when, my, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a, I was like a beast towards you. We think about our own hearts, church. Think about the sin that is within us and we all find our place there. If we've come to know Jesus and still we wake up some mornings and we say, when my soul was embittered, when I was, a preacher, when I was bitter towards God, after all God has given to you, after all God has given to me, undeserved, unmerited, a free gift of salvation, yet we sit here sometimes and we say, I've just been so bitter towards you for what you've done. My heart was bitter I was like a brute towards you, ignorant. I was like a beast, it says. I was like a beast towards the giver of life, towards the giver of salvation. And then what does he say next? Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me in your right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will receive me to glory. Praise God that we we don't get what we deserve. Amen? We're like brutes towards God. We're like beasts. We're bitter. We're angry towards God. Oftentimes, even after salvation, we find ourselves in this place and still God's holding us by his right hand. He walks with us. He's with us. And eventually, he will receive us, it says, to glory. It's an incredible promise. And we see Most clearly, God's goodness to us found in the gospel of Jesus Christ, in the good news of Jesus. It reminds us that God is a partner with us in suffering, that God just doesn't stand aside as the world suffers and as we look at the wicked prosper, but he actually entered into it, that Jesus actually paved the way. I was sharing a bit of the what we call the true story of the world, how God called a people and said, in the midst of you sinning against me, I want to do good by you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to do good in your hearts and in your lives and your families so that you can do good to the whole world. This is my intent for you. But clearly we find out that Israel fails in this mission. God wants them to do good, and what do they constantly do but fail, sin, sin? And walk away. So eventually we find ourselves in a place where we say, God, we need something outside of ourselves. We need goodness that we cannot attain. And God says, let me give you myself. Let me enter into the pain and the suffering. So no longer do you have to go into the sanctuary to find me, but you can just come to Jesus. You can just walk right next to Jesus and he's with you. And not only that, he's actually been there. He's gone ahead of you. He suffered in front of you. And therefore, when it says that he's right next to you holding your hand, he says, I know it's hard. I know you don't have all the answers, and I'm not here to give you all the answers. I'm here to give you myself. I'm going to walk with you in it because you're looking at the world, and you're looking at pain, you're looking at suffering, and you're not even good (laughs) outside of me. And I was perfect. Jesus is the embodiment of God's goodness, perfection sitting among us. And what happened to him? Suffering. Do you think Jesus ever had moments where he's looking out at the world, where he's actually looking out at the people, and he's saying, God, do you really have good intended for me? Because I'm the embodiment of goodness, and here I suffer on my way to the cross. On my way to suffer the most horrific death that anyone could ever possibly imagine. But it also reminds us that suffering is, may be a battle scar for us rather than punishment because if we are following in the way of a suffering Savior, then looking at the wicked prosper while God's people suffer should not be an astonishment to us. I just hope you know what you signed up for when God saved you. That when God plucked you out he said, you're mine, he called you to himself, he gives you grace, and then he says, now you're going to follow me and life's not always going to be easy but I'm going to be there. I'm going to hold your hand. I'm going to walk with you in the midst of it. I'm going to be there next to you when you're following Jesus. Oppression should not be puzzling or debilitating, but a fact for us that is to be endured, to know that as we look at the world, it's something that's inevitable for us, that there will be suffering, there will be pain, and Christians should expect it. The Apostle Paul states this, The powers that rule the world, we talked about these cosmic powers of evil and Satan, these powers that rule the world are the forces of evil that crucified the Lord Jesus. So we carry this story, God's goodness embodied in the person of Jesus, walking among us, leading us in the way of suffering and ultimately going the way to death, the most horrific death on a cross. But it says that God triumphs, triumphs, over Satan and evil, it says the Savior whose death was the atonement for sin is also the Lord who disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them by triumphing over them in it. Colossians 2.15. So now, through Jesus, we can actually triumph. So we see him as the person with, w- next to us, walking with us. As we look into a world where the wicked prosper, we say, God, you're next to me. You're holding my hand because you've already been there. I don't have all the answers, but you're telling me to trust, trust you. And you're right here with me. And then also we know that you have actually triumphed, that this is hard. This isn't easy for me, but I know that the battle ultimately has ultimately been won. It's already been won in Jesus, that he's triumphed over these things in Christ. And we know that we have a hope of future glory when it says, and eventually you will receive me into glory now through Jesus, if you know Jesus, there is hope for eternity. There is hope that one day all things will be made right, that God will come again, make things new, and there's a hope for life after death through Jesus. It says this in Romans eight thirty five 35-37, "'Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword?' As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, and all these things, we are more than conquerors. It says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And this understanding of the gospel, that Jesus is with you, as you're looking at the world and you're saying, man, the wicked seem to be prospering and you want good for your people. You look at Jesus and you say, Jesus, you were good. How did you imagine the wicked prospering? and I can just imagine you right here with me, walking with me in it. You have this vision of future glory, and you say, God, this world is hard. It's not easy to walk in, but through Jesus and through salvation in Jesus, there is hope for your people that eventually good will come to your people, even if it doesn't come in this life. And then ultimately, church, we recognize that Jesus has triumphed over it, that through Jesus, there is actually victory in him. And this leads us, verse 25 through 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength of my heart and my portion forever. This understanding of the gospel leads us to desire nothing but Jesus. Whom have I in heaven but you? We look into the world, we look into life, and we say, God, I have nothing outside of you. Because we look at ourselves, we say, God, I was a brute. I was bitter. I was angry towards you. And what did you do? You accepted me. You welcomed me. You loved me. You came to me. You give me a future glory and a hope. You suffered alongside of me and I didn't deserve it. And because of that, whom have I in heaven but you? You're everything to me. And then that leads us, this understanding of God being everything and the gospel being everything. That's why we call ourselves gospel-centered and outward-focused. We are gospel-centered. Everything comes back to Jesus, but that ultimately leads us towards our neighbor. Verse 27 and 28. "'For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near to God. I have made the Lord God my refuge.'" that I may tell of all your works. Those that don't know Jesus are separated from God now and those that don't know Jesus will be separated from God for all eternity. And that isn't just a reality we sit with and we say, oh, that's sad. But God says, no, I've done good to you. I've blessed you. I've cared for you. I suffered with you and I'm suffering with you right now. I'm holding your hand and I'm walking with you so that you can go declare this to others people need to see it and people need to hear of it and how will they hear unless someone's speaking it to them how will they know the goodness that there's someone actually walking with them and suffering if we don't go church how will they know that someone has loved them so much that he went in front of them and suffered on their behalf god calls us out in the gospel he says i've given you so much of myself And here's what I'm calling you to. I think of uh, Egypt, and I think of the story of the Exodus. Because you have this incredible moment in the book of Exodus where God's people are under oppression. They're being oppressed by, by Egypt, and it's horrific. It's this holistic oppression. You have spiritual, you have physical, you have relational, you have emotional, just like being bared down, God's people. And then God hears their cries, it says, and he comes to them. And he draws them out of Egypt. And there's this incredible moment at the Red Sea, if you, if you know the story, that God's people, he parts the Red Sea, right? God's people walk through on dry ground, and they get to the other side. And can you just imagine, church, I want you to visualize with me. Can you imagine, you're standing on the other side of the Red Sea, and you're looking back, and the Egyptian army is bearing down on you. And who are you but a bunch of ragtag slaves? And if they actually get to you, so you're just standing there like this, like, what are we even going to do? What am you going to do when these guys get to us? And they're coming across, and in a moment, the walls collapse, and they're swept away. Evil, the embodiment of evil and oppression coming at them. And God sweeps it away and triumphs over it. And then God pulls them to himself, and he says, You yourself saw what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you to myself on eagles' wings. Now I am calling you. Because of what I did, and because of the triumph that you have had, I am calling you to be a holy nation and a royal priesthood, a people set apart for my own possession. You saw what I did, how I saved you through the gospel, when you didn't deserve it. Just like God's people knew they didn't deserve it then, we don't deserve it now. You saw what I did when I saved you. Now I'm calling you to be a holy nation and a royal priesthood, you know, I had a hard time prepping for this, if I'm, if I'm being really honest, because I think about oppression, and I think about the psalmist. I think, I think about the Bible as a whole, and I think of a oppressed people writing to an oppressed people on behalf or for an oppressed people. So you have usually oppressed people writing for the sake of writing to the oppressed, for the sake of them be, being a light to the oppressed. So you just have people that are, just feel the weight of oppression. And I felt the privilege of being white, being a man, and living in America. Wow. Oh, overwhelmed as I studied this with my privilege. The privilege that we have. The privilege that we have, Church which is why it's so important for us in light of that to understand that we need the global church. We need brothers and sisters next to us that know the weight of oppression because so many of us, even though we put ourselves in the story, I said we could and we can. I'm so scared I'm going to fall off this thing. <laughs> we can. We can totally put ourselves in the story. But at the same time, there is a, communal reality to this that we don't really understand most of us some of us in this room we get it but the majority of us if I'm looking out into my audience we don't and what does that mean for us I think of the story of Frederick Douglass born in the 1800s he was a uh, African-American social reformer writer statesman and uh, he's known for some of his writings and some of his speeches. One of his greatest books was Frederick Douglass' Life of an American Slave. It's brilliant. It's a really short book. I highly recommend it. If you just really want to just kind of, just like uh, dip your toe into the African-American experience and to understanding your black neighbor, if you just want to dip your toe into it, it's a good book. It's heavy, but really, really good. But at 13, Frederick Douglass came to know Jesus in Baltimore through a Methodist minister. And he understood the need for the gospel for all people. And at 13 years old, even as a slave, he said, I see that everybody is dead in sin. I see that everybody needs a renewed heart through the gospel and through Jesus. This isn't just for some. This is for slave. This is for free. This is for all, for everybody to have and experience Jesus. And here's what he says. He says, though for weeks I was... A poor, broken-hearted mourner traveling through doubts and fears, I finally found my burden lightened, and my heart relieved. I loved all mankind, slaveholders not, exce- not 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 ex- not accepted, excuse me, slaveholders not accepted, though I abhorred slavery more than ever. I saw the world in a new light through the gospel, and the great concern was to have everybody converted. So you see this man that's transformed by the good news of Jesus. And he said, man, I want to see every single person come to know the gospel. Although confessing himself to be a Christian, Frederick Douglass had a hard time with the church in America all the way through his life. A really hard time. And here's a quote that I think will be challenging for us, but it's, it's really good. this Frederick Douglass. In his later years, he says, I therefore hate the corrupt, slaveholding." women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of the land. We have men-stealers for ministers, women-whippers for missionaries, and cradle-plunders for church members. The man who yields the blood-clotted cow skin during the week fills the pulpit on Sunday and claims to be a minister of the meek and lowly Jesus. And this is what I think is so important because he goes on to write about the songs that the black community would sing and talk about their importance. And here's what he says. They told a tale. This is him talking about the songs that they would sing. They told a tale of woe, which was then altogether beyond my feeble comprehension. Does this sound similar to the Psalms we've been going through? They told a tale of woe, which was then altogether beyond my feeble comprehension. They were tones loud, long, and deep. They breathed the prayer and complaint of souls boiling over with bitter anguish. Every tone was a testimony against slavery and a prayer to God for deliverance from chains. How many psalms have we read that sound exactly like this? The hearing of those wild notes altogether depressed my spirit and filled me with infallible sadness. I have frequently found myself in tears while hearing them. The mere reoccurrence of those songs, even now, afflicts me. And while I am writing these lines, an expression of feeling has already found its way down my cheek. While I'm writing these words now, an expression of sadness has already found its way down my cheek. Church, we need brothers and sisters in Christ to help us understand oppression. That's why it was so hard for me to study this, because we do find ourselves in this story. As a primarily white evangelical community, we recognize who we are, what God has given us, the privilege that he's given us, and we say, God, I don't need to just go to these communities, and here's, you want to know what I've learned in my position, the biggest things? I usually went out to love and to give, and say, man, I have so much to give, I need to go, people are desperate that we come and save, that we come and do something important for them. And then I realized quickly that the people I'm reaching out to you have so much to give me because they have a vision of the world that I can't even begin to comprehend. As a white man with the position that I have, I can't even begin sometimes to understand what it is to suffer under oppression. And if you don't believe it still exists today, church, bluntly I'll just say you don't know any minorities. Because one, two, three, I mean, how many people will you talk to every single one? I've had 15 conversations. I mean, I can't even count. How many conversations I've had? Same story over and over and over and over and over. And you think, oh, no, that's in the past. That's not today. That's not today. Yeah, that's Fred Frederick Douglass's experience. But that's not today. People aren't being oppressed. We don't see that. That's not happening today. It's not happening in, in, our, in our nation today. And when you come into these relationships, you say, either I can choose to believe what I'm hearing time and time again, countless times. I can listen to my brother and sister in Christ. I can sit down next to them and I can hear them. Or I can choose to completely disregard their voice. As the church primarily has done for years. Sadly. Which is an indictment on the church. So as we look at this passage, I want to give us a few things. We've, we move towards, one, we have to declare who Jesus is and what he's done and proclaim him as Lord and say there is salvation in the midst of suffering. There is hope for glory in the midst of heartache and each one of us can experience it. That's why we started with that. However, there's an experience here that begs me and calls me to be in relationship, to be in relationship with people That experience and sense and suffer in ways that I can't fully comprehend or imagine. Not to go to them and say, let me give, but to go to them and say, let me get. Let me learn from you, brother, because there is something that God calls to in here in the Psalms that you understand that I desperately, desperately need to learn from. I want to now move into our responsive reading. We're going to read this again with all that I've said, and I hope that uh, whatever has been said that is stirring in you, that you're questioning, that you pray as we read through this, and then also as you're just reciting it back, just think about what God is trying to say to you individually as you're contemplating it. So if you would please stand with me right now, and then if you have your Bible, Psalm 73. As you've done before. I'm just going to take a moment. I'm going to pause as I'm reading through this psalm. And up on the board is going to be, Whom have I in heaven but you? And that's going to be your response to my reading, okay? Whom have I in heaven but you will be your response after I pause. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Lofty, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens. Their tongues strut through the earth. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went to the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned therein. Truly, you have set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked at heart, I was brutish and air in ignorance. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength, the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near to God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. You may be seated. Let me pray for us, and then after I'm done, I just want you to take a moment and sit and reflect on what I've said and whatever God is sharing with you and what you need to deal with personally, whatever God is moving you, challenging you, encouraging you perhaps, reflect on that In just a moment we'll come up and introduce communion. Okay, let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for this church. God, I thank you for Redemption Peoria. God, I uh, thank you for placing them here and as you have blessed them, God, I pray that you would move them to be a blessing. God, as you have done good to them, I pray that you would move them towards goodness, towards others. God, we are grateful for the gospel and for Jesus. Remind us and refresh us with it every day. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.